at the Football Overview. Today, Man City's wait for a Champions League continues with Guardiola left to ponder. N'Golo Conte's man of the match performance was sublime, but are the Ballon d'Or suggestions just? The managerial merry-go-round, end of the show quiz, plus our combined 26-man squads for England at this summer's Euros? That's your roundup this week at the Football Overview. Hello and welcome to the Football Overview. Today I'm joined by Johan Aslet. Thanks for having me on, Dil. Luke Bateman. Hello, Dylan. And we'll also be joined by Jack Knight a little later when we discuss the latest from the England camp. Just before our moments of the week, Luke, I can only imagine your reaction when Pulisic was running through on goal against Manchester City. And yo, your heart must have been in your mouth. Just having to say that you rate Pulisic because if he scored the goal, you would have had to give in, wouldn't you? Oh, let's just say, first of all, I thought every player did brilliantly, not just Pulisic, but you are right. My heart was literally in my stomach in the 72nd minute when he missed. Usually that's a defining moment in the game, but which is ever so fortunate. They had no ability to do anything after that. And lucky for you, Yoz, you don't have to say that you rate Pulisic. I think that's a big bonus for you, as well as winning the Champions League. So to your moments of the week now, and Luke, what was your moments that you've picked out from the past week? My moment of the footballing week was Brentford achieving Premier League status at their 10th playoff of asking, thanks to their 2-0 playoff final win against Swansea City. I thought they thoroughly deserved it, a very, very dominant first-half display and a pretty steady second-half display. I'm very pleased for them. It's another brand-new club to the Premier League. They've been knocking on the door the last couple of seasons. They agonisingly lost the playoff final last year and I'm very pleased that they came up. Yeah, and a standout performer for me for Brentford in that game was Tony. And, yo, we watched him the week before, didn't we, against Bournemouth, it was, in the semi-finals. We didn't think much of him. We haven't seen that much of the championship this season. But against Swansea, he tore the back three of Swansea to the threads, didn't he? And it'll be so interesting to see him and Brentford in the Premier League next season. Yo's your moment of the week. And I think we all know where this is going to go. Yes, you are right. My moment of the week, of course, has to be Chelsea defying the odds once again this season and becoming champions of Europe. The game unfolded much to what I was predicting, with Chelsea defensively regulating that space in the half spaces and in behind the midfield, providing no luxury whatsoever for the likes of Kevin De Bruyne to find some comfort. And we made the best manager and the best team in the world look physically and intellectually limited in ideas, at times perhaps even clueless, And what a ridiculous decision not to play Fernandinho that first half. Just made the situation ever more crazy tactically. And I'm really hoping now, coming into a new season, that we could replicate that performance more frequently coming into the next year. So it's a very exciting time to be a Chelsea fan indeed. And that's where we are going to start this week. So before we get into the tactics and the key individual performances in this win for Chelsea... What a brilliant spectacle this was, Luke. Especially that first half display, end-to-end football. So brilliant from a neutral's perspective, wasn't it? You get those games, those big moments that you watch with your friends or your family. They might be a Euro semi-final, they might be a World Cup quarter-final. Big big nights like this, Champions League final, where it all comes together and you're really excited about the game all day. 
and it produces. And I was in football heaven in the first half, and I'm a neutral. I was absolutely loving it. The intensity, the, the fierceness of the competition, individual performances, individual battles. Um, I was living and breathing it as a neutral, so I can't imagine what it was like for Yoan as a Chelsea fan and, and City fans that we, we know across the country. Um, I, yeah, I loved it, absolutely loved it. So as a spectacle, a joy to watch, and I really didn't want it to end. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, it was an outstanding match, wasn't it? As you said there, the first half was just absolutely breathtaking. Yo's, there's only one place to start from a tactical perspective. You mentioned it there in your moment of the week introduction to this game. The decision from Guardiola to exclude both Rodri and Fernandinho was a crazy decision, wasn't it? We said even before the match, we we have a group chat, don't we, for the podcast, and we were saying straight away, why is Rodri and Fernandinho not in the team? Well, yeah, as I mentioned, that was the reason for how we scored the opening goal, because there was so much exposed space in between the midfield and defence. All it would have taken was a player like Fernandinho to drop back into that defence, which would have nullified Havertz completely. He wouldn't have had that opportunity. And that was literally how the first goal occurred. I thought the first half was near impeccable from a Chelsea standpoint. Not a single player under-delivered. And, you know, perhaps half the team probably produced their best ever performance, to be completely honest with you. But the thing what surprises me most is that Pep Guardiola said in retrospect at the end of the game that he wouldn't have done anything differently. So, again, it's just ever more just bewildering, to be honest, of what he was actually trying to do that game, what he was actually trying to succeed in doing, coming against such a brilliant Chelsea team. thing is, he used the same system defensively that he used in the semi-final against PSG. However, he had Gundogan playing in that position where Fernandinho or Rodri were playing previously. But is Guardiola totally to blame Or are the Manchester City players, especially the attacking talent on display with the likes of De Bruyne, Phil Foden, Riyad Mahrez, even Sterling was playing in this match. And for them to only have just the one shot on target, it's not just Guardiola to blame, is it? No, I'll preface this by saying that Pep is obviously amazing. We all love him. He's won this, he's won that. He's fantastic. You know, we've had the debate a couple of weeks ago about him versus Sir Alex for best manager ever, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure we get into that again. But totally agree. He got it so wrong. We were all so surprised. I try not to cover the same points about the Rodri Fernandinho thing. And uh, I think there was only one game of 53 this season that one of them hadn't played, which is just bizarre. So bizarre. And he did this thing where he plays so many attacking players that you kind of have to go one, maybe two nil up. Uh, in the first half of the game, whether they go on to win or lose or not, you have to overwhelm them and you have to score a couple of goals because that's what you're risking on. Less defence, all attack. Anyway, it didn't work. We all know it didn't work and whatever. Is he all to blame? Um, Possibly, um, because it it seemed like it confused them. Um, Should the players have been better? Yeah, one shot on target is horrendous. I thought the inclusion of Sterling was very, very surprising. As I've said, I'm a huge fan of Sterling, but he did not deserve to start that game. He hadn't been starting all the other Champions League games. Mares was just beaten in his individual battle. Unfortunately, Foden was pretty anonymous. De Bruyne got that terrible injury, which potentially might have disrupted them for the rest of the game. It just didn't work at all, did it? So is he all to blame? No, of course not. He's not on the pitch. He's not there. He can't shoot. But he is, I think, massively to blame. 
it's kind of almost as if Guardiola was kind of paranoid going into that game tactically and the end product was just mystifying, playing no defensive mid. It just allowed the likes of Havertz, Mount, Werner at times to be absolutely rampant, being incredibly eventful that first half. But which makes it even more ridiculous is the fact that it took Guardiola 60 minutes to have the epiphany to get to that realisation that what he was doing was just non-functional. It just was never going to work. And Tuchel must have thought he was dreaming coming into that second half with Fernandinho still on the bench. Absolutely crazy. I just want to say quickly as well, we've talked so much on this podcast throughout the whole season about the Champions League specifically, because it's always so interesting and it's been interesting again this season. And we spoke, haven't we, about the entire change of mentality that Pep has introduced since that Leon defeat last year. You know, he, he has changed the whole way the club plays in the Premier League just so that in the big Champions League nights they were prepared. And he's done it all the way through and they've got all the way to the final playing that way. And at the last moment, he did exactly what he did last year by overcomplicating things and being perhaps a little bit too egocentric with his selection. And it's absolutely perplexing, isn't it? Because he changed the whole way and then at the last moment changed his mind back again, which is absolutely baffling. You mentioned Pep's ego there, Luke. Do you think Guardiola went into this match and thought, I've got to do something drastic here, possibly because of the games before where he lost against Tuchel? And maybe Pep was thinking, I've got to come up with a tactical master plan so that when the game finishes, people go, oh, that was down to Pep. Do you think that's a bit harsh, that it was down to Pep's ego that he made those decisions? Or do you think he needed to make those drastic changes following the defeats to Tuchel in the FA Cup semi and in the Premier League recently? I think it is a little bit harsh to say that he was doing it to make himself look good or he was doing it because he has a big ego, which he does have. All managers will, to some degree. I think that is harsh. But to me, it felt like if I played Johan at FIFA, let's say, if I played two games against him and he beat me twice with similar tactics... And then the third one, I went, oh, you know what? Screw it. I'm actually going to play uh, five attackers and I'm going to put it on ultra attack mode. It felt like that. And then on the third one, I got caught out again by doing something different. In a very simple way, that's what it felt like to me. I would actually completely disagree with that assessment, to be honest with you. At least from my perspective, the way I looked at it, it was almost as if kind of Tuchel and Guardi were kind of engaged in this kind of psychological battle to outwit each other. And I think that kind of presided over his wisdom, effectively, to be honest. It was very disappointing from Pep. How to make such a ridiculous, monumental mistake in a game of such significance, for me, he, he is almost completely complicit in this loss. Can I ask another quick point as well? Emotionally speaking, Chelsea, who were the underdogs, are in a position, once again, just like when they won it in Munich, where... They sort of had nothing to lose and they were just riding a wave. You know, you know, in December when they had Lampard, they would never, ever have dreamed of making it to the Champions League final. You know, Johan, you, you might have thought perhaps you might never win it again in your lifetime. You never know what's going to happen. You know, Roman Abramovich could sell up. So you never know. And so for Chelsea, new manager, it's kind of like the Di Matteo effect last time. They're riding a wave, whereas City, they are 
you know, on the, on this perfect, inverted commas, journey from rags to riches and the next part of this incredible journey with all this legacy from the, uh, you know, Sheikh Mansur's money is to win the Champions League and it's to win it in a perfect way with the perfect manager. You know, Aguero would have been the perfect send-off. So they need to win it in a perfect way that fits into a sort of Hollywood story. And for Chelsea, they were riding the wave and the momentum of being in that position. And so City will never truly win it, probably, until they're slightly on the back foot and, and riding their own form, I think. You mentioned earlier about the debate we had between Pep and Sir Alex a few weeks back. Obviously, that debate was our top five managers since 2008. But if we look at the whole collection, the whole of their managerial achievements as one, as a whole, who would you say comes out on top, Pep or Sir Alex, looking at the whole of their careers? Well, I just think you know, it's kind of crazy just how this Champions League final result has literally instigated this debate. But, but for all the reasons most people weren't anticipating, people thought that Pep would then claim his third Champions League title and almost make it definitive that he is indeed the best manager of all time. And philosophically speaking, I don't really think it's hard to dispute. He's completely evolved the game of football in such a way nobody else has for all the correct reasons, incentivizing all these substandard mediocre teams, encourage them to play far greater in possession football. And it's just something great to be beholden to, something great to see as a football fan. Don't get me wrong, I think Sir Alex Ferguson, I think of course he has won more titles and perhaps his man management is somewhat more superior, but what he has generally contributed to the game of football is in parallel to Pep Guardiola. Yep, I agree. And I agreed last time as well uh, for, for many, many of the similar reasons, the philosophy, the way he's revolutionised football in this country. I, I'll try not to skate around the same points again. And also, I, I don't think it would have been fair. I think it would have been too fickle to suddenly say, had he have won at the weekend, that he definitely is great than Sir Alex Ferguson. And on the flip side of that, I think it would be unfair to say he's definitely not greater just because of the one goal swing that meant he didn't win. Yeah. He will be back and he will definitely win the Champions League again, whether that's with Man City or whether that's in another country, wherever he goes next. He'll be back and he'll win that trophy again in no time, I'm sure. So yes, I do think he is going to be better than Sir Alex Ferguson if he isn't right now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think what Yoen said as well, the fact that he's just completely revolutionised the game, Pep, and I know he made some, it was catastrophic errors, wasn't it, in that match against Chelsea? But yeah. you'd like to think that finally he would learn from those mistakes. He, obviously, you mentioned the mistake against Leon a bit earlier on, Luke. But surely in a few years' time, we'll look back and go, yeah, Pep's got another Champions League under his belt for Manchester City. And he is, that almost would confirm, wouldn't it, that he is the greatest manager of all times so just quickly before we move on Angolo Kante man of the match performance wasn't it he was absolutely sublime did anybody else stand out for you guys because for me Kante was just head and shoulders above everybody on that pitch for the first half though I actually would disagree I think from that first half performance I think maybe most people would have actually said Havertz I mean he was almost playing like he was Lionel Messi Man City allowed him to play like that I mean he's never played to that standard before you know, it's really interesting. For me, I think from the 60th minute onwards, I think really Kante was really displaying a lot of his better qualities because obviously they were on the attack. We were under a lot of siege. He had the opportunity to display some of that. So for me, I think he has to be a man of the match. And he was the key difference, as he has been for so many of the 
big games this season. You can't really go around that. Um, and to be honest, I mean, people have had the criticisms of De Bruyne and perhaps they're a little bit valid. The fact, you know, you have a player like Kante, he neutralised him at every opportunity. And people are now having conversations about whether N'Golo Kante deserves a Ballon d'Or. For me personally, I think he get a bit hasty, even as a Chelsea fan, because I think all year round, he hasn't been at that level as he has been in previous years. And with the likes of Lewandowski scoring, was it 56 goals in 30-odd games or whatever it is? Absolutely ridiculous. For me... I think he takes it. So I'm not going to go to the extent in saying he deserves a Ballon d'Or, but it was a brilliant performance and at least a contender, especially if they were to win the Euros. N'Golo Kante in that match, guys, he won more aerial duels than anyone, despite being one of the smallest players on the pitch. He also won 10 ball recoveries as well. It was a fantastic performance from Kante. He also performed brilliantly, didn't he? in the Real Madrid game over both legs in that match, the second leg of the Atletico Madrid game in the quarterfinal as well. But Yoz, you mentioned the Lewandowski. He scored 53 goals in 36 games. He scored 41 goals in the Bundesliga, beating Good Muller's record. So Luke, who would you go for as your Ballon d'Or? If we had to choose it today, who would win it for you? Kante or Lewandowski? Interesting you've given me the choice there because I was already going to say that Lewandowski deserves it. Um, also, the fact that he missed out last year for no good reason, to be honest. There's absolutely no reason why the Ballon d'Or couldn't have been hosted virtually. Yeah. Everything else was, the BAFTAs was, the podcast awards were. were. Um, there's absolutely no reason why the Ballon d'Or couldn't have been hosted virtually. And he would have been the worthy and rightful winner last year. So in my mind, he doubly deserves to win it this year. And especially for breaking that Gerd Muller Bundesliga record. I'm pretty sure the reason why it wasn't obviously hosted last year was because of how COVID obviously impacted football. So obviously their arguments yeah. were to be, you know, it wouldn't be an accurate kind of, you know, choice because obviously bear in mind it was cut short so abruptly as it was. So Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would go with Lewandowski just over Kante. The amount of goals he scored in the Bundesliga, 53 goals in 36 games for club and country. Absolutely outstanding from Lewandowski. And for this next segment, to discuss the latest from the England camp, I'm joined by Jack Knight. Hi Dylan, how are you doing? So in terms of the England squad, on Tuesday, Gareth Southgate announced his 26-man squad for this summer's Euros. Mason Greenwood withdrew through injury on the morning of the squad announcement. And then the six others to miss out from Southgate's preliminary 33-man squad are Lingard, Ward-Prowse, Ollie Watkins, Ramsdale... Ben Godfrey and Ben White. So this got us thinking, would any of the players who missed out on Southgate's 26-man squad make it into our combined 26-man England squad? So we'll start with the goalkeepers, guys. So the goalkeepers Southgate chose were Pickford, Dean Henderson and Sam Johnston. Would we make any changes there? To be honest, knowing obviously that Pope is injured, no. I'm pretty satisfied with that selection. I think Pope would have probably have got on there over Johnston. But apart from that, I'm pretty sure that is what we could all agree on. I hope. Yeah, I think the goalkeepers pretty much pick themselves, don't they? Yeah. So in terms of the defenders, we've still to hear the latest from the injury that Trent picked up yesterday in England's 1-0 win against Austria. However, it doesn't look Dylan, good. I'm just going to stop you there. Breaking um, news, he, Dylan. He's, he's out. Um, he's out six weeks. 
Oh, okay, there we are. Yeah. So you are really yeah. getting the yeah. latest here, aren't you? So <laughs> Yeah, we're just hearing it now. That's mad. So in terms of the defenders, Trent is out. But just before we talk about who he'd replace Trent with, what did you make of the decision to include four right-backs in the original squad? Honestly, I'm happy with it. I'm happy with it because they're all really good. And I'm more than happy to have the four right-backs over some other midfielders that are just not going to play a second. If we're honest, Lingard probably would... I mean, he might now come in for Trent, but Lingard probably wouldn't have started one of the group games if we could help it. James Ward-Prowse might not have even come on if he'd gone. I'm more than happy with it. He's a huge fan of Trippier, who can play left-back and right-back and did a great job for us at 2018's World Cup. Walker can play centre-back. Trent, who was taken is clearly the best right-back we've got when he's on form. And Reese James has just had an absolutely fantastic six months and can play right wing-back and right-back. So I think as players, I'm, I'm more than happy for it. The best players are in the squad. Obviously, Trent dropping out, as you said, Luke, you'd probably put Lingard in for Trent, but we'll discuss that a little bit later on. So in terms of those defenders, guys, so included as of now, we've got Chilwell, Cody... Reese James, Maguire, Tyrone Mings, Luke Shaw, John Stones, Kieran Trippier and Carl Walker. So would you make any changes there, guys? For me, I was a little bit surprised that Connor Cody was included in the squad. I don't think he's had a great season for Wolves. What do you think of that, Jack? Uh, yeah, I'd have to agree with that one. I'm not. I'm. I'm struggling to see the the logic. He's he works well in a back three, we've seen that, and I think he gets exposed a bit in a back four. His turning circle isn't the best, and he's not very fast. So I'm not really, I'm not really sure what the um, what the thinking was of bringing him in instead of maybe one of the other um, centre halves that was available. Um, yeah, I, 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 I can't see him playing any any minutes in in the World Cup to be honest. And if he does, it worries me. I completely agree about the back four and Cody because we're going to play a back four, aren't we? Unless he has a drastic change of mind, Southgate, or we get to the uh, knockout stages and he changes things up. Cody's just not going to play. The first game against Croatia, if Maguire isn't fit, which he probably won't be, Mings will probably play because he's had a better season and he plays in a back four. Walker's not going to suddenly play centre-back in a back four. So if I'm honest with you, I'm a little bit surprised that Cody's going. Um, I know White and Godfrey are probably obvious picks to drop out because they're young and they're inexperienced and they're both versatile. So they will be, I'm sure, around it in the future. But I would have been quietly quite content if Godfrey had gone instead of Cody, to be fair, because he can play in more positions. Yeah, that was something I was going to suggest. I think Ben Godfrey deserves to be in that England squad over Cody. Is everybody happy with that? Because for me, the versatility he's got, playing in a back three, playing in a back four can also go out to fall back if needed. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah, I would probably agree with that, yeah. Yeah, okay. more or less. Okay, so this is going to be a little controversial now, guys. And it's quite difficult, isn't it, with the injury to Maguire? Because Gareth Southgate, I was listening to him a few days ago when he announced his squad, he said it would be a bonus if Maguire was fit even for the knockout round, let alone the group stage, he actually has ankle ligament damage. We're not too sure about the severity of it, but it's obviously pretty serious because he's not training with the squad. And for me, I actually wouldn't take Maguire. 
even if he's fit for those knockout games, he's not going to be anywhere near match fit. He's going to be 60% fit if you're lucky. And then also, the you mentioned there, Ming's coming in. How can you have a settled defence throughout the Euros if you've always got the burden of Maguire? When he gets back fit, you'll be straight in, even if he's not fully fit. What, what, do, we, what do you think of that, Yose? Well, I've had this conversation with you, and let's be honest, I think coming into the Euros, I don't think Harry Maguire is going to be on his best form. So for me, he's going to have to make big adaptations specifically because of that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he obviously resorts into playing into a back three. And just going back on what you've said, I think one of the boys mentioned Mings. And for me, I'm not a massive fan of Mings. I think he's far too reckless, rash. I think his defensive abilities are overstated. And I would have gone for Godfrey to play in that left centre-back position. Um, so, yeah, to be honest, I think Harry Maguire playing him with all the unpredictability surrounding him, it wouldn't be beneficiary for the rest of the team because, you know, you could have some stand-up performances from the rest of the players and all of a sudden they're excluded because, obviously, he places more confidence in him. So I just think the whole dynamic would be changed in a very detrimental way if they were to play him. So would you take Maguire, Yos, to the Euros? Knowing that he's not fully fit. It's very interesting. To be honest, probably not for the reasons I've already explained. Because I just think it'd be so demoralising playing so well. And then, obviously, when he re eventually recuperates, reinstating Maguire. I don't know. I just don't really think it'll be of any interest or their best interest to play him, to be honest. I would have to re I would probably reevaluate if I was Southgate. I think they're better off going to the Euros thinking Maguire's not fit. Let's forget him. Let's play a back three with the guys we've got available. Forget the back four. We mentioned a while ago, wasn't it, when we talked about England, that I wasn't sure they could play a back four with John Stones and Maguire, let alone with John Stones and Tyrone Mings. My concern for the defence for this tournament has sort of gone through the roof in the last week, to be honest. I think it was Gary Neville, wasn't it, that said on Sky a couple of weeks ago or a month ago that Maguire was the most important man in the England side. And at the time when he's fully fit and he's played every minute of the whole season, I kind of thought that was a bit of an overstatement. Now he's out and now Trent's out and now Stones has just lost the Champions League final and also Stones not next to Maguire, is feeling a bit concerning. We're now just down to a half-decent left-back, which is Shaw. And <laughs> a goalie, Pickford, who is never really in the best of form. There's always question marks over him, even though he's going to play. So I am suddenly unbelievably concerned. Um, do I think I would take him? I think, yeah. Be and because I'm not sure it's worth not taking him and taking another mediocre centre-back, I think it's more. it's better for us to hopefully have him for the knockout stages if we need him. And if we've got there, then hopefully Mings will have done a half-decent job. So I do think I would take him because he could end up being a bonus. And I know it's going to be oh, it's going to be a black cloud. But if we get to the knockout stages, we clearly have done OK. Do you not think, though, that would impact the players, though? Because obviously he won't play the first opening few games, as we discussed that. So if they play well, the, the alternatives in the team, that's going to ruin their confidence, isn't it? Not necessarily, because if if we've got through the group, Mings or Cody, for example, must have done something right. And surely, mm. if you're in a right frame of mind, you you play until you until you play badly. I, I, if we've done well enough to get through the knockout stages, I can't see a forty percent fit Maguire coming in for an informed Mings or Cody. I, mm. I, I don't know. I'm not Gareth Southgate, but 
I hope not. It is a tough one, and I am now pretty concerned about it. I'm so happy with the midfield, and I'm so happy with the strikers, and we'll get on to that, but I am a little bit worried. The only issue I have is um, John Stones. I feel like we've seen him with, like, partnered with Otamendi and whatever, and he is he he's not he's not good enough. Um, he needs a leader next to him, telling him what to do and keeping him in, in check and stuff like that. And I don't see. I know how. I know um, Connor Cody and Tyrone Mings are probably very vocal in their defences at Villa and Wolves respectively, but I don't see that um, relationship working. So if we were to get through to the knockout stage and we had the option of a pretty fit Harry Maguire coming in to play Germany or Portugal in the round of 16 I'm biting your hand off at that instead of having Conor Cody or Tyra Mings in there I agree have we not seen this before with David Beckham being unfit in tournaments previous I remember they took Wayne Rooney to the 2006 World Cup Michael Owen wasn't fit either for that tournament for me it's just going to be a huge burden over the England tournament when's Maguire going to be fit Southgate when's he going to be fit just forget Maguire. Even if he's back in the tournament playing for that Germany game, he's not going to be fit. He's not the most mobile player anyway, is he, Maguire? Let's mm. be honest. Let alone with a dodgy ankle. I, I hear you completely, but is it worth really not taking him at all just to take Godfrey? But Godfrey's not bad, though. He won't, he won't play at all, Ben Godfrey. He won't get on the pitch at any point. But if they play a back three, why wouldn't he be playing? I'm concerned about the idea of the back three because we haven't played it once recently. Yeah, I think it's too late to change the back three. Yeah, he's going to have to stick as it is and play Mings or Cody or he's going to have to revolutionise the whole system with one week to go. And I don't know which of the lesser of two evils I'd prefer. Okay, so I think this is going to be a bit of a stalemate, this one, isn't it? I think Jack and Luke are going to stick by Maguire. With... The thing is, like, sorry, I just want to make more on last point. For me, though, I just think if you exclude Harry Maguire, if you're playing a back four, there's no stability, in my opinion. There, there is a big loose cannon, let's be honest. They're capable of making mistakes. There's no leaders on the pitch. And for me, I just think that in itself is a very compelling reason to resort back to a back three. I think there's just that much more certainty there. And I think you know, for the reasons you just said, Dill, it will damage the esteem of the players, bring in Maguire, no, he's not fully fit, he's not going to be on the best form, and... Who's your back three? Walker, Stones, and... So guys, we'll talk about this when we do our starting combined 11. As I said, I think it's going to be a bit of a stalemate here, however, I'll go on, I'll I'll say this, I'll take Maguire, because if you're not taking Maguire, you're taking Ben White, aren't you, with Godfrey over Cody, so we'll take... Maguire in those defenders I'll, I do think though the burden of having Maguire every game but we're, we're going to have to move on now guys so the midfielders so we've got Jude Bellingham Jordan Henderson Mason Mount Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice are we happy with all those guys in the squad I think uh, Ward Prowse would have been a threat from set pieces if needed but as I said at the top of the show he, he doesn't play in the first choice midfield three or four, does he? And let's be honest, we did okay. We did very, very well in Russia with our set pieces um, without him as well. So I'm not gutted about that at all. And I think Lingard is first reserved to come in. And I'll be very happy if he goes. And if he doesn't for some reason, I can live with it because I think Mount and Foden are ahead of him. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, if Trent wasn't injured... Obviously, we've just found out that he's going to be out of the Euros. I would be pushing to put Lingard in ahead of one of those right-backs. I don't think there is any need to have four right-backs. I know they can play in different positions, 
But obviously now the fact that Trent's out, I think that actually might be a blessing in disguise. Because you've got James, you've got Walker, you've got Trippier. Three very, very good right backs. I would have had Trent above. I would have had Trent ahead of Rhys James. I know he's fantastic in the Champions League final. But I think Carl Walker is the best defensively, isn't he? Trent's the best going forward. And then Trippier's the best in a back three. So that would have been my reasoning behind that. But obviously, the fact that Trent is out means we don't have to make that decision. Do you think him selecting, obviously, four right-backs kind of just exposes the fact that he doesn't really have confidence in a single fixed system and that he obviously could potentially have make, make some dra you know, drastic changes to the formation? So we keep speaking about them, him being so compelled in playing this back four. I don't even think that's the case whatsoever, even with Maguire. I think that's a little bit potentially glass half empty, though. I think you can look at it that way and say he doesn't have confidence in any system, or you can mm. look at it and say they're all very talented and they're all very versatile, so therefore they can play different systems. We can say... Exactly, he, yeah. We, yeah, you can say he has no confidence, or you can say he's prepared to be flexible with systems. So mm. like, time will tell, really, whether it was a good idea or not. We can only take three now because there's no trend, so that's kind of solved that issue. Cool. Jack, you happy with that midfield? Would you think about putting somebody like Ward-Prowse in or? So no, the, the, the Ward-Prowse wouldn't come in for me. I, as, as Luke mentioned there, we've done, we did pretty well without, without set pieces. And that doesn't even include Trent Alexander-Arnold standing over free kicks and um, corners. So I think we'll be, I think we'll be fine. Ward-Prowse, um, going back to what Luke said about bringing in Lingard, the way I look at it is that um, Ward-Prowse would go and probably wouldn't get on the pitch at any point. I can see Jesse Lingard coming on as a sub in games and changing the changing the system and changing the game for us. So that's that's what I'd be happy with, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've mentioned a few times on the podcast with Jesse Lingard, especially if you're going to play a back four with the three, uh, three centre midfielders, you're going to play mm. Mason Mount, aren't you? Potentially Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson. For me, who can make a big difference to that midfield coming on the bench? Who actually has the work rate, the defensive characteristics for me Jesse Lingard stands out so I think Jesse Lingard is a good shout there so in terms of the forwards guys Southgate chose Calvert-Lewin, Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford, Saka, Sancho and Sterling and for me guys I was a little bit surprised Southgate didn't go for Watkins does anybody think that Watkins deserved to get in that squad do you think he offers anything different? Personally, I, I don't think he should be in there. I think the forwards are mouth-watering, I have to say. I, I'm yeah. really excited when I look at that lineup of forwards. I think it's a tribute to Watkins' season and his whole career so far that he's in with a shout there. If I'm sat at home and I'm Bamford, I'm a little bit gutted I'm not more in the equation because he's had a brilliant season. He outscored Calvert-Lewin in the end. Um, and I think he'd be a little bit sad. Past that as well, you've got Wilson and Ings that have had okay seasons. Um, so I think we're in good shape with the forwards. I really do. I mean, think if Wilson, Ings and Bamford, you know, had Irish or Scottish blood. I mean, they'd be they'd be number one for their country. Mm. So I think we're in a good position with the forwards. And I'm, I'm super excited about all of them. And again, with Greenwood being injured, it's very sad, but it actually just gives Gareth Southgate less of a headache, I think. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of from Southgate's original 26-man squad... The one change we've made is replacing Connor Cody with Ben Godfrey. And I think everybody agrees 
don't we, that we'd replace Jesse Lingard now with Trent in that final squad. Thanks a lot, Jack, for coming on. And yeah, we look forward to speaking to you next week when we discuss our England starting 11s as well as our Euros predictions. Hope you've enjoyed. See you later, guys. (laughs) Nice work. Just before we finish with the end of the show quiz, I just want to give a quick mention to the managerial merry-go-round. And in Serie A, with Napoli announcing that Gattuso would leave his position as Napoli manager, last week Gattuso has joined Fiorentina as their new manager. Napoli have replaced Gattuso with the ex-Inter and Roma manager Luciano Spalletti and Inter have replaced Conte with Simeone Inzaghi. It's also official now that Allegri will replace Pirlo to become Juventus manager for the second time. And despite another club being desperate to reappoint their ex-manager with Spurs looking to bring Pochettino back to Spurs. And of course we talked about this on last week's episode and whether him going back to Spurs would be a good option. However, this doesn't look likely at the moment with PSG taking up the option to extend Pochettino's contract by an additional year. In recent days, it's been widely reported the Spurs are instead looking to appoint ex-Inter manager Antonio Conte, who me, Yoen and Jack thought would be the ideal appointment for Spurs on last week's podcast episode. And it'll be interesting to see whether Spurs, a side in desperate need of a rebuild, especially with the potential loss of Harry Kane, it'll be very interesting, won't it, to see if they can get that deal for Conte across the line. Another huge turnaround this week. Ancelotti will move to Real Madrid. He'll return to Real Madrid for the second time as their manager and he will leave Everton. A very surprising move with Ancelotti having finished 10th with Everton last season due to a real poor run-in at the end of last season. And with the sudden announcement that Ancelotti will leave for Real Madrid. This has left Everton looking for a new manager and Everton have pinpointed Nuno Espirito Santo as the ideal choice for that vacancy and are therefore set to open talks with the ex-Wolves boss. And Wolves look like they are going to appoint the ex-Benfica manager Bruno Lager as their new boss. Just before we finish guys, the end of the show quiz. So get your pens and your papers out. Uh, yep. All right. Okay, so oh, name the 10 longest serving managers who are going to the Euros this summer. So the 10 longest international oh, managers who have served their countries going to the Euros this summer. And you've got 30 seconds to list those managers. I think I'm struggling with this one. I was not expecting this deal, I've got to be honest. Um, my mind's numb, I can't even think. Okay, I'll give you a little bit longer today, guys, because I can see you're still thinking. There's so many I don't know the names of. How are you getting on, Luke? Oh, I've got a couple in the bag, but they're, they're quite, ob- they're quite obvious for Yeah, so... I, I'm really struggling now. Managers, you had to go managers. I'm just not that familiar with many managers internationally. Uh, I think you might be struggling for once you this week. I think... Put, put a t- <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? There's a very good chance I might lose. I, I think you might not. I'm struggling as well now. Okay, guys. So last five seconds. 
five, four, two, one. Okay. We'll start with Yo's. So you mentioned you had three names you thought were yeah. in the bag. Who are those guys? Well, I've just gone for the prominent ones who everyone's familiar with. I went for Low. Yeah, so Wackim Love. He has been Germany manager for 14 years and 325 yeah. days. That is absolutely outstanding. Oh my goodness gracious me. I know. And he's obviously going to be leaving this summer, isn't he? The performances yeah. for the German team haven't been so good of late. Who else have you got, Yose? Deschamps. Yep, so Deschamps is on this list. He's been there for eight years and 329 days. I went for Santos, the Portuguese manager. Yep, he's on this list as well. He's been the Portuguese manager for, for six years, 251 days. All right, so now I'm just uh, very struggling, I've got to be honest. <laughs> I, I, my mind, I, I, I just couldn't think of anybody, to be frank. I'm just trying to think now. Well, they're the three. They're the three um, that I had nailed on. I know. I know Frank yeah. de Boer is new at the Netherlands. I know Mancini is new to Italy. Mm. Um, I know Luis Enrique is new to Spain. I know Steve Clark is new to Scotland. The Irish manager is fairly new. Giggs is new. He's not even going to be there to Wales. I think top ten. I think uh, Martinez or Southgate, one of them or both of them, might have snuck in somehow. Yep, so they are both really? they're both on this list. Yeah, I thought so. So Martinez is eighth on this list. He's been there for four years and 303 days. And in Gareth Southgate, oh, yeah. he Martinez, is 10th yeah. on this list. He's just scraped in. He's been the manager for four years and 184 days. Any other ideas? Do you know what? No. I'm honestly clueless at this stage. <laughs> and I, I feel like an idiot for not getting one. I know there's so many that I should be saying. But right now, I I generally can't ponder on any possible solution because I just don't know their names. Okay, so I'll, I'll go through the list now. So Wackim Love was first, as we've just said there. Didier Deschamps was second on this list. The Switzerland manager, Vladimir Petkovic, oh, was okay. third. Mm. He's been the manager of Switzerland for six years and 336 days. Then Fernando Santos was next on this list. I'm not surprised you didn't get this guy in fifth on this list. And it's the North Macedonia manager, Ingor Angelovsky. He's been there for oh, five years <laughs> and 229 days. In sixth, the Sweden manager, Jan Andersson. He's been there for almost five years the ukraine manager andrea shevchenko in seventh very close to the five-year mark as well roberto martinez as we said earlier in eighth the russian manager then is ninth stanislav churchesov he's been there for four years and 295 days and then gareth southgate is 10th on this list from early next week, guys, the football overview will become the Euros are here, where, as always, we'll be here every Friday evening to bring you the very latest from the tournament. So thanks to Yoz, thanks to Luke, and we'll see you next Friday evening. <laughs>